Welcome to Sound DeFi, the podcast that delivers key insights from today's thought leaders on all things DeFi, blockchain, crypto, and private market asset data. I'm your host, Chris Berg. Earlier this morning, great panel on asset management and web 3.0. The moderator was Jeanette Spaulding. She's the CEO of Invenium Asset Management. We had Chris Broderson, the global head of digital assets with Apex Group Limited, and also Larry Newhook, uh, president and chief investment officer from Alpha Innovation. So all three, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great job on stage. Jen, I want to start with you. Let's just start with um, asset management and Web 3.0. So what is Web 3.0 really going to mean from an asset management perspective? I think that it means new investment opportunities from the perspective of investors that want to invest in blockchain startups, in Web3 startups that are participating in this transformation that we're seeing in society, where we are transitioning from Web 2.0, which is where you know our data is being sold, uh, we access the internet through storefronts and things like that, to Web 3.0, where it's participatory, people are launching their own decentralized applications uh, onto blockchain that can be accessed by anyone around the world, and people are transacting in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion, which, again, is transformative for society. So from a venture investing perspective, this is an incredible opportunity. And then the digital assets themselves. So, you know, people talk about cryptocurrencies, but we can broaden that out and talk about tokenized assets. We can talk about tokens themselves, uh, which are tokens that give you access to use services of digital protocols. And then uh, tokenized assets like what we see a lot at Invenium, where you know we're looking at commercial real estate, we're looking at tokenized funds and things like that. So there are all of these different investment products and flavors of investment vehicles that are encompassed when you talk about investing in digital assets and Web3. So when I hear you talk about tokenizing assets, I've got my own ideas of you know what that means from a leverage perspective, but I want to hear from you. So one, uh, why would I want to tokenize an asset? And two, then how would I use that? You know, we started looking at tokenizing uh, our funds back in 2018, a little earlier in the game at that point. But for us, we, we see the, uh, you know, from an asset management perspective, being able to tokenize our longer duration funds, our real estate funds, our private equity real estate funds, and having the opportunity to have secondary market liquidity in these illiquid assets is kind of a home run, you know, when liquidity picks up on, in these assets. So if I'm the CIO of a pension fund and you tell me that I can rebalance my alts portfolio any day of the week, that's huge. And from an asset manager's perspective, you know, that's a benefit. Yeah, it's a benefit of it to the investment manager because now his or her fund is more appealing than the next VC fund that they're doing due diligence on. So for us, that's the that's the real benefit. And then obviously for us, we're looking at investing in digital assets within these funds. So for us, it's another opportunity set for us to generate alpha for our investors by investing in in this um, in digital assets, which you know, and often if you're doing more alpha kind of strategies, it's diversifier to the existing you know fiat portfolios. So with the thing that. Uh, really jumps out to me is it seems and this might not be the right term because I'm not in finance like you guys are but it seems like I get to sort of almost hyper liquidize my assets right because now if I for example if I tokenize my house or I've got a Michael Jordan rookie card that could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars I can tokenize that now I've got some liquidity that I can use out of that is that a fair assessment on my part yeah yeah, no, absolutely. And it gets, it gets a little more difficult because, you know, when you're talking about securities versus a, a trading card, um, because, and that's one of the one of the benefits of having a, a tokenized asset is all the restrictions on transfer that you would normally see in a security, like either from a regulatory uh, restrictions on transfer or a contractual, you know, the any restrictions that you typically see in a PPM, you can build that into the smart contract. So you can, that way you can have these trading, but only tradable to people who can legally buy 
buy that security and selling it from sellers who can sell it, you know, assuming that all the restrictions and transfer are met. So that's kind of the real, the real benefit of tokenizing. You can actually do that now. So. It's a great space. Um, Chris, for you, one of the things that jumped out in the conversation, because obviously there's a big conversation around crypto, and I love how you said, crypto is interesting, but it's this digital asset piece that really is expanding what's going on. And also you'd mentioned how you've got a lot more people coming to you now. They're fund managers saying, hey, I want to look beyond the crypto piece to more digital assets, which I presume are NFTs. So can you talk about why you're saying, hey, crypto is interesting, but here's the bigger play? The bigger play, in my opinion, is because we have so much friction in the market today with assets. That, and Larry mentioned some of those pain points, right? Maybe if we use a token, we can remove those pain points and that friction. And that's what's really interesting. And when you look at the statistics around the number of companies, investable companies that are out there that are public, it's down 50% from where it was 10 years ago. I think that's about right, okay? So there's more and more money flowing into these private types of assets. And those assets need to be well represented and they need to become more liquid. Now, tokenizing something doesn't automatically make it more liquid, but it's a start. It's a help. Do you mind um, sharing a little bit about your story about how, I think it was 2014, you said you were introduced to the blockchain space. Right. And it sounds like you had sort of an aha moment. So share us a little bit about that story. And what was it about the blockchain tech that gave you that aha moment, knowing your background? Yeah, so I was, uh, this is when I was at Accenture and I was asked to look at, at blockchain. And of course, the first thing I did was I, I read Satoshi's white paper, right? But then I took a step back and I said, I want to understand the technology. And the aha moment for me was when I realized that this new paradigm of being able to securely share data in a private manner would have huge implications for so many different business processes. Right. And the analogy that I always use is, you know, back in 1993, we could imagine a day when you pushed the button and the dog food showed up. Right. But it took us 25 years to get there. <laughs> in this, we're not, it's not going to take us 25 years because now we have all that infrastructure, networking, cloud computing, you know, all these other things. And outside of the world of financial services, we're starting to see blockchain have some really significant impacts in terms of business process, and not just automation, but really optimization. Can you give us some examples? Sure, so if you, if you think about things like tracking very difficult assets, large serialized assets, right? If you can represent each of those serialized parts on the blockchain as a token, you now have a digital representation of that asset, and now you're able to follow it around. Where has it been? What sort of maintenance has it received? Which parts have been replaced? It, you, you, like, and that's what blew my mind when I started to think like in that way to say, you know what, this is just a, a different way of us to be able to track and trace things. One thing I want to get from each of you, if you don't mind, is where, because one of the things that's jumped out to me in this conference is you step into you know this podcast, Sound DeFi, and I think DeFi, I think, okay, well, I'm now in this decentralized space, but a common theme through many of my conversations have been, hey, we actually want more regulation. So where's the balance between regulation and innovation? Well, I think that a large part of the balance is coming from, for example, Invenium's mission to 
bring data to tokenized assets. So going back to the, you know, why would you tokenize an asset and what do you do with a tokenized asset? The fact that you can actually anchor data to these assets, uh, that once they're tokenized, that data will travel with the asset. So Chris was mentioning, you know, you can kind of have this audit trail, an immutable audit trail, we call it, of everything that an asset has done throughout its entire life. And once you're able to actually connect data that can be updated and gathered in real time, that means you have a very powerful kind of asset. And it's powerful from a regulatory perspective as well, because regulators can see, um, they can get more insight into what documents and what agreements and what spreadsheets have gone into the value of this asset, for example, or you know who all has touched this asset. And so from my perspective, the, you know, the regulations and regulators are not going away, and nor should they, because they, they do serve an important role in society. So it's about how do we shape our interactions with DeFi and with digital assets to uh, help regulators do their job. And one way we can do that is through robust data and data-rich tokenization assets, which is, you know, squarely what Imbenium is doing. So Larry and Chris, I want to get your assessment in the context of my question about, because oftentimes regulation squashes innovation, right? So where is that fine balance? Also, if you can speak to that in the context of the President Biden's recent EO, because both of you didn't seem to be fans on stage about the EO, so I'm just curious as to why. Yeah, well, a good example is, um, you know, so I'm involved in uh, launching a, uh, a regulated DeFi asset management platform. And, you know, so, again, it's an oxymoron, right? Yeah. You know, typically, <laughs> but it's bloody hard. That's, that's the truth, right? So when it comes to, like, we're accepting that I'm not going to have 100,000 users of this in the next year, all right? Whereas if I, if I just, you know, spun up a deck somewhere and unregulated and do some airdrops, I can get all kinds of, of investors. But when we're talking about regulated platforms, we're talking about permission, AML, KYC, and listen, a lot of investors aren't going to want to do that, and that's fine. But we're playing the long game. So yeah, we'll have some, you know, high net worth retail investors participating that are permissioned, um, but we're really kind of using uh, this platform as a back in for an institutional offering. Um, and that's where we think the real money is going to be made ultimately. As for uh, you know, President Biden, again, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to believe anything that a politician says, right? And to Chris's point when he was speaking on the, on the panel is that you have different regulators and it's a really is a power grab. And, you know, it's let them fight it out. And meanwhile, we'll go and uh, develop uh, outside of the U.S. until they figure things out. You nailed kind of where I want to go with this question is the fact that because there's concerns about the lack of the regulations and the clarity, now we have this liquidity going outside of our borders. And that's the antithesis of what I'd like to see happen. So, yeah, agreed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And unfortunately, in the U.S. and other major developed parts of the world, like uh, the EU, that regulation is just so slow, whereas it, Larry was mentioning on stage the, the BMA, you know, they're, they're, they're very thoughtful, they're very smart, they're very responsive. And the same is true in other jurisdictions like Abu Dhabi, Cayman Islands, et cetera, et cetera. And to your point, Chris, is when we start to see meaningful capital leaving, that's when I think we'll get real regulatory engagement. And I would say not just, you know, liquid capital, but also mental capital, right? That's going to be leaving because it's like, hey, I'll go set up shop in Bermuda or whatever else. Two more things I want to touch on, please. One is, um, and you touched on this both of you, did a great job asking this question about custody and security, right? And then you talked about, hey, it's not about hacking the blockchain. It's about hacking Oracle, which I think can kind of freak everybody out from a security standpoint. So I'll let you start on that one, Chris. If you wanted to speak to what can we do to improve 
the custodial aspect and the security aspect? Yeah, so there are several what I consider to be institutional-grade custodians out there that Apex works with. And they each have their own flavor of security and multi-party authentication. So really, the choice of custodian boils down to a couple of things, but really you have to look at your use case and say, okay, is that the right solution for what I'm trying to do? Will that custody fill my needs? So that's the, the first piece. On the security piece, security audits are going to become a huge issue in the world of automated smart contracting language, especially when there's the use of a an Oracle, an external data feed, right? So as I mentioned on stage, I don't have to hack the smart contract, I have to hack the Oracle, right? And then the other thing you have to look at is these smart contracts, as they start to proliferate and get tied together, are we creating waterfall effects that we can't stop? Mm-hmm. Which you say could lead to actually more attorneys rather than less. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on that, Larry? Yeah, from an asset manager's perspective, uh, I think what you're going to see is more, unfortunately, more regulation, like changes to the Advisors Act. That's going to you know, require, so even right now, a registered an SEC-regulated custodian is generally required in that. But some of these other platforms out there, like the uh, the coppers and, you know, and fireblocks, you know, they're not technically a custodian of that. Right. So and so when you're, Chris, you were saying earlier about, um, you know, new investment managers wanting to launch crypto funds and that, they may not even know this, that, okay, that's fine, you, great, you know, copper has a great solution, fireblocks, great solution, but that's not going to cut it with the SEC, right. you know? So these are some of the things that we're, you know, I think we're going to see some more regulation from, at least on the Advisors Act side, which will impact, you know, my business, but not really because we've already thought through these those issues. Right. But for a new entrant, though, it could be an issue. Jenna, if you you don't mind speaking to the security and custody piece. Yeah, I think with regards to the security piece and data integrity piece, it's an interesting question because something I've been working on in the past year is this concept of private data oracles where you have a company that is publishing data uh, to the blockchain via their own node. And one of the questions I would get a lot is, well, how can you prevent the company from lying? And I think people have a tendency to expect blockchain to fix every single problem, including keeping companies honest, which was never I mean, that is not the job of blockchain. Um, And it's, you know, that's the job of regulators and authorities and things. So the way to keep companies honest when you're talking about decentralized technologies that are being used in the ways that we're talking about is to just make sure there are mechanisms that are recording when illegal activity happens so that then we can refer to the appropriate authorities and the, the society's processes will happen in the same way that they've always happened. We currently don't have a way to prevent companies from lying in our world right now. So why do we think that blockchain should be the one to prevent that? It's not going to, and nor should we expect it to. So for me, it's about how do we facilitate, how do we take advantage of what blockchain offers us without expecting it to rewrite everything for us and change the way society is structured? Because that's not happening. We still do have a society that's going to function in similar ways to the way it currently functions. Um, this is sort of an off-the-wall question, but it's been running through my head the past 24 hours. I just want to get your take on it. If you want to pass, just say pass. But one of the things I'm excited about is when we talk about what this information is going to mean from transparency, I think it's going to add more value to your assets, which potentially could obviously raise the value of those assets. Yes? Okay. The challenge then that I bump up against is, okay, well, for my home, for example, now my home value is going to go up, which means my city is going to want to tax it at the same rate, and now I'm paying a much higher property tax. So just the, the taxation piece, I mean, any thoughts or comments on, we all know the government's not going to lower tax rates, right? so ta- 
I just want to put that out there. Anybody want to comment on that at all or pass on it? Well, I'll, I'll give you, a, a, I guess here's a, a story. So I had drinks with a former colleague a week or so ago, and he was telling me this story about his son, who is an NYU student. And when the son turned 17, he gave the kid $15,000 and said, go buy a car. And the kid said, why do I want a car, Dad? I'm going to NYU next year. So he put the money in Dogecoin, right? So now the kid comes back to his dad a, year, a couple of years later and says, Dad, he said, I've got $1.3 million of Dogecoin. And he says, so what's the problem? He said, well, the problem is I have to pay taxes on that. Mm -hmm. And you know what I call that? I call that a high-class problem. <laughs> Very well said, Chris. Or now he could talk, you know, go swap that out and leverage it in Venus and some other you know, places like that. So. That's, you don't sell it. You don't sell it. You just lend against lend it. Against Can you speak it, yeah. to that? Because that's exactly, I don't know if you've used the platform Venus. I do, but that's what I'm doing with some of my assets is you just lend against it. Yeah, I, I, I have not that. But you know, obviously, if you can't, you know, don't crystallize that capital gain. And, but there's platforms out there that allow you to just do that. So. Right, but it goes back to his question is, if, if these sorts of things are going to increase the value of my home, mm -hmm. well, that's a high-class problem, Yeah. right? Poor you. You have to pay taxes because your house doubled in value. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeanette, great job today. Thank you again for putting this panel together. I just want to give you the last word and, and invenium. Yeah, sure. So I think that this is only the beginning in terms of where we see asset management going and how we see the creation of digital assets powering a, a new version of, of what we see as asset management. And we're just really happy to have partners like Chris at Apex and Larry at Alpha Innovations who are kind of forging this path with us. And we are looking forward to the future. This is Sound DeFi, the podcast that delivers key insights from today's thought leaders on all things DeFi, blockchain, crypto, and private market asset data.